0: father with great anticipation of your glory we open your word we know that your word will do exactly what you set it up to do it will accomplish the thing for which you send it it will not return void it will crush sin it will reveal sin It will encourage and it will command. It will teach and instruct. It will also comfort and give peace. It will provide joy and satisfaction. It will teach us who you are, what you're like, why you do what you do. And it will also teach us that there's so much more about you that we can't know and won't know. But will spend an eternity getting to know. It teaches us about our hope. It's going to accomplish encouraging us to look forward to what's ahead so that we can endure what's in front of us. So we are needy of your word. Like a child who falls on the sidewalk and scrapes their knee and cries for mommy or daddy, we also cry, Abba, Father. We need you. We need your word. We need to hear your voice. We need your comfort. We need your peace. We need your encouragement. We need your truth. We need stability. We're desperate for you. And if we don't know that we're desperate for you, then create in us desperation for you. So we trust In the powerful working of your word this morning. May I simply be an instrument and may all of our ears be open to you as your spirit speaks and works. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in today's text, we'll find just how pivotal. Godly leadership is to the health of a church. And there's obvious things that need to be stated, like there's no such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a perfect pastor or a perfect elder or a perfect church leader. And so the description you're going to get today is going to look like this is what a perfect godly church leader should look like. And I have to preach this Well, I sit in my office all week going, no, that's not me. Oh, that's not me. <laughs> like there is a legitimate struggle to look at some of these requirements to be in a godly man. And you don't have to be a church leader to, to find these things as important or, or, or to understand them um, or to understand what why they're here. And we're going to look at what it means to be a faithful shepherd. But... The ultimate point that Paul is going to make for Timothy is, Paul, your job, or Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, your job is to be an example. And if, so so I take on the role of Timothy in context, right? I'm a local pastor like Timothy was. So I read Paul's words to Timothy as direct communication to me in my role. But obviously, there's a gazillion applications and ways in which that directly applies to you as well. But then there are instances where Paul's very specifically talking about what Timothy himself is doing. Like we'll see in a few verses that the council of elders had laid hands on Timothy. Well, the council of elders didn't lay hands on me, you know, like Timothy. That's a very specific to Timothy type of thing. And so... uh, you know, look at these verses and Timothy's being told how to pastor the church in the way in which he's told the pastor is to set an example for the people. So if the pastor's supposed to set the example for the people, what does that mean the people are supposed to do? Follow the example, right? So if Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, behave this way. Why? So that you set an example for the people so that they would what? Behave this way. So everything here about what the church leaders, how they, what the kind of character they should have and the kind of Christ likeness they should have and all the descriptions of what Timothy should be or what Pastor Mark should be or what Brian should be are supposed to be our effort to set an example for you so that you do those things too. Meaning everything I say today about church leadership directly applies to you. So don't, get distracted and ignore, well, this is all about elders. And we already talked about elders. And this is for, you know, what pastors do. No, no, this is what the pastor should do so that you know what to expect from your church leaders and the very things that are being told for me to do, you're being told to do. And I'm supposed to set that example for you. And so is Brian. So, well, so I want, I don't want you to, lose sight of where we're going so as you understand that as we talk about church leaders if i'm saying the 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 elder or the pastor has to be like this you also have to be like this that's that's the application uh, of the text and so we get to verse 11 and paul says to timothy command and teach these things so First question is, what are these things? These things are within the direct uh, context of the verses before. He just explained in verses 6 through 10 how important it is that the church have sound doctrine or good doctrine and that they follow that good doctrine and that they have nothing to do with irreverent ridiculousness, but that they train themselves in godliness. Because it holds a promise for this life and the life to come. And then Paul jumps on the back of that idea of the life to come and says, that's where our hope is. Our hope is set in the eternity with Christ. So we have an eternal hope in God, our Savior. So let's pursue godliness because godliness today transfers over into eternity forever. And so those are the things, that these, those are the, these things in verse 11 that, Paul, that Paul's telling Timothy to command and teach the people. So we have two words here in verse 11, command to teach. I think we often think of like, yeah, it's, of course it's the, the elders' responsibility, the church's shepherds who are the elders. So I'm going to use the word pastor, elder, and shepherd probably today, maybe even overseer or church leadership, and they're all synonymous They all mean the same thing. They mean elder. Okay. So the Bible does not delineate between a pastor and an elder. They're the same role. Okay. And so we easily accept that the elders in the church should be teaching the church. Right. It's a, it's, we saw back in chapter three that it's a requirement of church elders that they're able to teach because it's such an important role. So, you know, If you didn't agree with the pastor teaching you, you wouldn't be here this morning because you know you came here for me to teach you, right? Did you come here for me to command you? Do as I say! Right? Like, he's telling, Paul's telling Timothy, command these things. So the word teach, you know means to explain so that there will be understanding and there'll be assimilation and there will be taken to heart for the nourishment of the body of Christ. Teaching requires that it's not just words said, but words communicated so meaning is understood, right? It's important that the teachers in the church know how to teach. And obviously, like I said, there's no such thing as perfect teaching, right? And so as I learn what you're like, I have to learn I'm also learning what I'm like and learning what each of you are like and I communicate differently to different people based on how they learn. And then when we all come together in the same setting and have to teach everybody, well that's a little different and a little more difficult, I think, but ultimately I'm growing in my teaching, you're growing in your learning. Right? And and we're growing together in that. And that's an expectation from the church. No one struggles with that. And and the things that Paul is telling Timothy to teach are vitally important. The emphasis on godliness in this life with our eyes and hearts and minds set on their eternal hope in Christ. That truth covers so much of the Christian life. But then we have this other verb, which is command. And the, the interesting thing is the meaning of that verb is actually far more intense than the word command in English is. The Greek word literally means to pound in. And I don't know you about you, but like when I first read that, I was like, when I think of pounding something into somebody, I think of like grabbing them by the collar and punching them. Like really pounding it in. You know, that's a little too violent and a little unnecessary. So I don't think that's the best way to describe pastoral ministry because that shouldn't be the way it is. But the concept of pounding in is ensuring that what is taught is followed, that it sticks. There's another place in Scripture where this same Greek word for command is used in Acts 5.28 after the apostles are preaching the gospel and the council and, 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 and the high priests take them captive and, and bring them in. And, and, and they say, we gave you, that word gave is the same word as command here in verse 11. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in Jesus' name. That's a negative usage of the word, but it shows you the severity of the word that this idea of command, this Greek word for command here, conveys strictness, hence the meaning to pound in. Timothy is to order the church. He's to announce truth to the church, to teach the church, and to pound them in in an authoritative manner as Paul's representative of his authority. Now, I'm personally, I don't think of myself as a pound in kind of guy. I'm gonna try to be a little more sensitive, but there are times when it's required. And so I don't want you to walk away from this concept of command and think that means pounding it in because I think that sounds And feels and carries a connotation of like violation of compassion and gentleness and understanding and closeness and the sweetness of friendship and all those things. So I don't want you to think of it as a violence, but think of it as an urgency, a strictness. Hence, my oftentimes, especially when I'm preaching, that like veracity, which I instruct you and command you and encourage you with such like intensity because I look at the scriptures and I say you have to do these things you have to it's not an option. You have to. God said it. You have to. And it's not just because God said it. Look at the benefits that are here for you. And look at the reason why you should do it. And look at the results that will happen. And look at the, the conflict it will resolve. And look at the relationships it will build. And look at the reconciliation it will fix. There's so many benefits to just doing what God says. And as a, a student of the Word of God, I see that all over Scripture. And then I come to the pulpit and I get to talk to you or I meet you in my office and we have a little counseling session and we talk it out or we hang out at your house having coffee, just talking as friends, or whatever we're doing. In all those scenarios, my responsibility is to evaluate your life, understand who you are, how you think, what you're doing, what's going on in your life, know what needs to be taught in that specific situation, encourage you in that direction, and also command you. Now, the intensity of that command will vary depending on the situation. Sometimes the command is soft, and sometimes the command needs to be strong. But it should never be sinful. It should always be in love. And it should always be patient, understanding, kind, and faithful to truth and faithful to you. So there's a lot of requirements that go into doing this well. It's not an easy task. I can tell you that personally it's not an easy task. But it's a gloriously joyful task. Because it requires, and I'm just, I'm just grateful to God. I'm grateful to God that he made me a people person. That I just love people. I remember once <laughs> I my dad always told me this grown up. He's like, "Mark, you picked the worst friends." <laughs> Cuz I was always drawn to I'm mean, always I drawn to everybody. So I had friends who were like super good kids, you know. But I also just really clung to the the bad kids, the the trouble kids and I always, you know, I'm always around them when they got in trouble. And I got in trouble a lot, but it was like minor kid trouble, you know, nothing major. And I was in my early 20s. It was right before I discovered that God wanted me to be a pastor. I think I was about 21 at the time. And my childhood friend, Jamal, who lives in the Twin Cities, we've been awesome friends since like third grade. His dad is a super godly man, super awesome man. And I was at work with my parents. My parents owned a Christian bookstore. And we were at work so I was working at the Christian bookstore in Milwaukee area, and Patrick, Mr. Gilbert, I'm sorry, if he heard me preaching right now and he heard me say Patrick, he would call me and say, it's Mr. Gilbert. So <laughs> Mr. Gilbert says to, says to my dad, because my dad says to, to Mr. Gilbert, I just, I, I don't know why Mark picks these people, because there was this guy that I made a connection with at the store, and he like totally, this guy was a big trouble, and he was a mess, and I'm like, I'll be your friend. And my dad's like, why do you pick these people for your friends? They just lead you down the wrong path. And I had no idea I was going to be a pastor at that point. And Mr. Gilbert says to my dad, that's exactly what God wants him to do. That's going to serve him in whatever ministry God calls him to. And then I became a pastor. I'm like, oh, I get to, it's my job to love people? Well, I can do that for free. I love that. <laughs> so, I I just, I look at, I, I just, I'm thankful to God that he built me the way he built me, that I just love people. That's just who I am, okay? Maybe you're the same, maybe you're not, I don't know. But the point is, it makes my job, and I hate to use the word job because this is not a profession, this is a life calling. This is not a job, this is a ministry, and that's an important distinction. But it is my calling and my ministry to pour myself into you relationally. And that, for me... It's fun. I love that. And I love you. And I love loving you. It's so much fun. Here's the hard part. You're not perfect. Here's the extra hard part. Neither am I. And I have to bring in my imperfections and understanding of the word into your imperfect life. And still love you and relate to you in a way that leads you to Christ. And still maintains a healthy relationship with you, that is incredibly difficult to navigate. But you have a responsibility in that too, which we'll see when we get to Hebrews today. And what we see here, and if you were to look back at verse 6, in verse 6, Paul said, If you put these things before the brothers, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So back in verse 6. Paul gives Timothy an encouragement. That's an important word. It's an encouragement. To put these doctrines. These good doctrines before the church. To believe and apply and follow. And that what was an encouragement in verse 6 now becomes an imperative command from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is now receiving a command, and he's being commanded to not only go from being encouraged to teach sound doctrine, but is now being commanded to teach sound doctrine. And is not only is he, is he being commanded to teach sound doctrine, he is also being commanded to command the church to live according to that Sound doctrine. And as we see in other scriptures, he is also commanding Timothy that in his command of truth to the church, those who don't follow it are supposed to be dealt with a certain way, which always includes love and understanding and compassion and brokenness and heartfelt, genuine Christ like. Servitude. In our current church culture climate in America, it can be offensive to those who are in the church that a pastor makes demands of his people. Tell us what to do. You're not our judge. You don't get to judge us. You You can't directly command the way I'm supposed to live or tell me I'm supposed to do a certain thing. You can't tell me what to do. Some people think that way. A lot don't. And what you can hear in that kind of presentation is a resistance, right? It's that resistance that comes from the heart that's the problem. And to a lot of people, that kind of leadership pushes back against the false notion, and I call it a false notion on purpose. This false notion that is present in some churches that church leaders, elders, and pastors must be so gracious that they act without judgment so that they don't offend anybody. It's impossible to operate as a human being without offending people. It's impossible. Do you 100% agree with everybody in the world? No. Do you 100% agree with, ev- with one person in this world? No. Do you 100% agree with the closest person to you in your life? No. No. If you did, you and your spouse would never argue. You disagree. It's life. We disagree with each other. We, we don't see eye to eye and everything. That's part of life. It's gonna happen. And because of that, as we interact with one another, we are constantly at risk, intentionally and for good reason, at risk of offending other people. And that's okay. In fact, growing requires you being offended. The problem is we've taken the word offended and we've turned it into such a negative term in our culture where it's like, oh, don't be so offended. Why is everyone so offended? It's okay to be offended. It's how you communicate that offense that's, that is the problem. If, so, if you say something to me that's, that's, Mark, I notice this sin in your life and it's just not okay. I'm going to feel offended like, oh, you have just offended my sensibility. You've offended my, it, that hurts me. But if I look at you and go, oh, I'm supposed to feel that offense because my sin is wretched and wicked, and now I'm being called out, and now that offense is, 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 is actually the Holy Spirit convicting my heart. That's intentional. Okay, turn this offense into righteousness. That's the righteous way to do it. But what we do in our culture, in America at least, not necessarily even with Christians, but definitely some Christians too do this, is once you say something to somebody and they're offended, they go, I'm offended. And they use the offense as an offensive to the other person. And they respond with their offense, uh, offendedness to throw back. Instead of absorbing the offense as, me- as it's meant to be and using it to grow. We have to risk offending each other all the time. You can't communicate. You can't even talk about sports without risking offending each other. It's, part of, it's required in the way that we interact with one another. And so, how much, I mean, we have to get used to that concept so that when your church leaders and your shepherds and your elders and your pastors direct you and command you and guide you, you're not offended when they tell you the way you're living your life is not okay. The choice that you're making is sin. Don't do it. Don't go that way. Don't talk like that. Change your attitude, change your perspective, change your mentality. Think this way. Do this. Don't go there. Talk to them. Reconcile this relationship. Do the hard thing. Endure. Don't do You know, all those things are going to offend you because they're not what you want to do, but they're what you need to do. And that's the, the leadership's role, to see that in your life and to communicate it to you. You're going to get offended. Absorb it. And the conviction... What you might call guilt immediately turns into, if it's if with a sinful heart, will turn into, don't judge me. You can't judge me. I'm offended. But the righteous heart, the humble, broken heart who's been re- whose sin has been revealed, absorbs the offense and turns what feels like guilt. The Holy Spirit is actually giving you conviction. And that conviction leads to more humility and leads to righteousness and acceptance of sin. And a desire to do what's right. And this teaching that the elders are commanded to command the people. This teaching that the elders are commanded to command the people. To follow Christ. To understand doctrine. And to obey God's word with their hope set in Christ. Is not only taught in 1 Timothy. In Hebrews 13, 17, the author says this. Obey your leaders... And submit to them. We tend to focus on the submission part here. But the reality is if if you are to obey your leaders, that requires that your leaders are posing commands for you to follow. There's nothing to obey unless there's a command given. So if you're obeying your leaders, that means they're giving commands. So there's a teaching that underlies this command. This, This command is for you. Your responsibility is to obey your church leaders and submit to them. Paul's telling Timothy, "Well, your responsibility is to teach them and command them, so that they have something to obey." Here's the thing, and here's the problem: is a lot of pastors take that authority and they go, "I can command the people to do whatever I want." That is not what Paul is teaching Timothy to do. What commands is Paul? Or I'm sorry. What commands are Timothy? Is Timothy supposed to give the church to follow the commands of Scripture? Your submission to church leadership, your obedience to their commands is not an obedience to people, to men. It's not honoring men. It's not upholding men. It's not exalting men. It's not not about the church leaders. It's about Christ. It's about obedience to his word. That's why church leaders commanding the people has to be biblical commands. If you've ever sat down with me and had a conversation, I gave you any direction in life. I didn't give you just willy-nilly off the top of my head, you know, some freelance instructions or recommendations. I tell you this is what you should do because in this action, we see the gospel unveiled like this. And this verse says you should do this, this, that way or whatever. I'm always going to give you a biblical reasoning for such an action. It has to be biblical. And if it's not, then don't listen to it. Because you are responsible to obey God first. That kind of command from your church leadership is not unbiblical. It's biblical for your elders and pastors to command you and direct you and teach you and hold you... To the expectation that their words and their teaching and their direction and their guidance and their commands are followed and obeyed by you. You should expect me to hold you accountable to obeying what we teach. You should expect that. Because that's what scripture is saying. And if I die tomorrow, this has nothing to do with the individual person. It's about the role. If I die tomorrow, someone else takes over. Same, pers- same thing with that person. And that person should be saying the same things I'm saying. Which is what Paul gets at in chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Meaning, the teacher should be teaching the same thing. Because it's not about the person, it's about the truth, it's about the word, it's about Christ. Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now there are obvious reasons why this kind of leadership could worry a Christian, right? If a leader is abusive or controlling or domineering, well then obedience to their commands will begin to feel like disobedience to God. You'll feel the tension in the air of, ungodly people doing ungodly things and directing and pushing in ungodly ways that don't match up with the word of God or you'll see God's word start to get manipulated. That's why it's important that you also are in the word, that you are filled with the spirit, discerning truth from the lies to hold your leadership accountable. I was told last week, someone said, hey, I think you did this thing wrong. And I was like, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be like, no, I didn't, <laughs> but I was wrong and they were right. And I was like, yeah, that's true. I guess, I mean, you just got to like, I don't have it all figured out either. I'm along on the same ride with you guys. I'm not exceptional in any other way. Brian isn't exceptional in any other way. We're different and unique. We have our own unique gifts from the Holy Spirit that, that the Spirit's using. That has nothing to do with me, you know? And so, and that has nothing to do with, with Brian as an elder, and if one of you men become an elder, that you're not special, I'm not special. We're just instruments of the Lord doing his work. right? And we all have to fall in line with our specific role. And so when pastors are abusive and controlling and domineering and pushy and offensive for the sake of being offensive or crass and rude or any other like ungodly type of leadership, there is a fair concern from the body of Christ to resist the commands of that pastor or that elder. Now, I... I do have another response for that, but I'm going to give you this response first. This is why it is imperative that the shepherds of the church themselves obey 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, which says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So this is Peter talking to the pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's exactly what Paul's about to tell Timothy, being example to the flock. If this kind of shepherding is taking place in the church, then the body of Christ should have no qualms about following the kind of men who lead with this Christ-like shepherding heart and mind. It's only when the pastor is domineering, or when a person has a past of seeing pastors abuse their authority, Or if a person is in willful sin against God's authority, that they will resist the commanding authority of their shepherds. So when there's a resistance to authority, there's a a breakdown, a dysfunction in somebody somewhere. But if the pastors are obedient to 1 1 Peter 5, willingly leading in love, compassion, and being an example by their own conduct, then the people should have no other recourse but to follow their Christ-like example in their elders and pastors and submit to their commands as their commands will be biblical because they're godly men. And if their commands aren't biblical, then they're not being godly men. And if they're not godly men, their commands won't be biblical, which means you have to know the word too. Yes, you absolutely do depend on the teachers in this church. You depend on your teachers. You depend on me and Brian and Christian and Drew and Joel and the women depend on Holly and teach women's Bible study. And will depend on Emily to lead another study. And so there are. There are, it is it is necessary that with the number of people teaching the word that all of us know the word. You never know when you'll be called up to teach. And you'll never know when you hear someone teaching you. go That don't sound right. I've got questions. but If you don't know the word yet, then you're going to go, OK, I believe that. I was asking someone the other day. I said, do, do you believe what I teach when I talk about God's absolute sovereignty over all things? And they were like, yeah, totally. And I was like, could you give me one verse in the Bible that shows that? And they are like, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you believe it, but you don't really know it. You, you believe it because I'm teaching it to you, and you trust me, and, and, you're, and you're taking that in trust. And, and when I teach you, it makes sense to you so you believe it. You're not just believing it blindly. But I want you to know it. And understand it and develop. So that's true of any doctrine. And so it requires that the church not only knows the word, but that the church in knowing the word will read verses like this where, oh, I'm supposed to obey my leaders and submit to them. And my leaders are also supposed to look like this. So I'm putting all these pieces together and going, Pastor Mark should behave this way, act this way, look this way, and I should listen to his teaching, believe his teaching, and we'll talk about questioning teaching in a second and disagreements. But I believe his teaching, and and, and I'm going to follow and submit to the direction of the church doctrinally and in practice and in the ministries we do. And if you know the word, you can do that joyfully. If you don't know the word, you're going to struggle to see those pieces come together. And there's a reason for this kind of submission to church leadership. And Hebrews 13, 17 goes on to tell us why you should obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. This is why you should obey them and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the shepherds of the church, the pastors, the elders, have the authority to command and teach because they are also held accountable for how you live. I mean, think about this in your own life. You have children? Do you have authority over your children to command them how to live and to teach them? Yes. Why? Because you're accountable for them. And if your child goes and does something really stupid, what do you think the police are going to do when they bring your kid back to your house? They're going to say, is this your kid? Yeah, well, he's your responsibility. Your kid just did this, this, or that. That's on you, dad. Right? And we know that's on us as parents. So authority is related to accountability. You're you're accountable for how your children Behave. You're accountable for how your children grow up and are raised. And, and because of that accountability, you are also given authority to direct, command, lead, guide, and teach them. It's the same principle in the church. The elders are accountable to the, for, for your spiritual well-being. We're accountable for your health. We're accountable to present you before God one day as holy and blameless without any blemish or spot. That we sanctify you in the washing of the word by the power of the Spirit, the truth of God's word. is by communicating to you the truth of God's word and giving and directing you according to his commands. That's a responsibility. And because we're held accountable to that, God also gives that same role the authority to communicate in a certain way, to teach and to command. And it is my objective as a church elder, accountable for your souls, given authority over you, to direct you toward healthy, Christ centered, God glorifying, biblically based, spirit saturated Christian living. That's what I want to see you live. A healthy, Christ centered, God glorifying, biblically based, spirit saturated Christian life. That's my goal for you. That's my objective for you. I teach with that in mind at all times. Man, is there sin that gets involved in me when I try to? Oh, I'm sure. Plenty of it. And plenty of times. If sin shows up. I recognize it when we're in Bible studies. I'll come across the word and I'm like, I don't know what that means, and I'm not prepared to talk about it in front of everybody right now. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll think to myself, don't let them know. Don't let them know. Don't let them know you don't know. And I'm like, let's just skip over that word and come back to that later. Because my pride is like, don't look like you don't know. That'll diminish your authority. And then the Holy Spirit's like, or it will show your people that this is not about you. And that you can be humbled too, as they should be. And that we're here to learn together. And it's not about me knowing, it's about us growing. And Don't you think me being like, I don't know what this means, what do you guys think, would produce a better atmosphere for growth than me being like, it says this. And I just take a stand on something I don't understand. Of course. So there's a characteristic to the leadership that's required as well. And what's most important to understand here is revealed to us in 1 Peter 5. I just read for you 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, but now we see in verse 4 that after commanding the pastors how to shepherd, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd, that's Christ, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter makes a direct connection between the role of the pastor and the role of Christ. Jesus is the shepherd of the church, and the men he places in the church to shepherd the church are taking on a role that is submissive to Christ, but also like Christ's role as shepherd. Meaning, the elders of the church are representatives of Christ to the church that is why there are so many directions for church leaders in Scripture, so that they are ensured to live a life that is an example of Jesus for the body. And that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Every church elder should say that. Every pastor should say that should be the pastoral motto of the Bible. Be imitators of me. As I am of Christ. That has nothing to do with the me. The me there is just a bridge, just an instrument, just a tool, just a chain link that draws a connection between two very important realities Christ and you. If I'm just the instrument, I, the instrument, know what it feels like to be connected to the source. Christ and I love it and it's delicious and wonderful and good because I say delicious because God's word tastes so good and Jeremiah says oh I found your words and I ate them and they were so good and delicious and satisfying to my soul knowing Christ is so satisfying and satiating and I'm connected to him and I want to be connected and I'm connected to you and I want to be this vein that pumps the living blood between you and Christ. I want to be an instrument of the fluidity of your growth in Christ that as he pours himself through me, it goes into you. And as you pour yourself into Christ, it goes through me and I get to be a part of that relationship, like a symbiotic relationship, an organic, biological, but supernatural connection between you, me and the Lord. And I just get to be this thing that exists and i get all the satisfaction joy and pleasure to be connected to you and and all i'm doing is saying i just want to be like this guy i want you to see what this guy's like and since i so badly want you to be connected to this guy jesus i want to live like him so that you see him so that i can be that vein that connects the lifeblood between you and christ So my objective in imitating Christ is not for my own glory, although my flesh will want that for sure. And I'll have to battle that. And all of you will have to battle that too. You want to be like Christ, but your sinful flesh is going to make it want to be about you. And by doing so, I can show you what Christ looks like and draw you into him. That's that's my heart. That's what I want. I want to be an imitator of Christ so that you are an imitator of Christ. And if I am an imitator of Christ, I can say... Do what I do. Say what I say. Think what I think. Go where I go. Imitate me. Theologically, doctrinally, and in the practice of the godly life, imitate me. And I, that's a terrifying thing to say in front of a group of people, knowing full well that I've got sin. I'm putting myself out to say, imitate me. No, now I've got to go be Perfect. I'm grateful for your grace and my imperfections, but we all want to be a little more like Christ. So the authority of your church leaders is not meant to point you to the greatness of great men. Never. Their authority is to be so Christ-like that their authority and leadership, and in their authority and leadership, you see Christ. And never forget who your Lord and Master is. That is why a domineering pastor won't make much progress towards a holiness in his church. He's not going to have a healthy church because he's not going to be revealing Christ in his leadership. And without Christ, the church cannot grow. So this is why Paul goes on in verse 12 to say this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct in love in faith and purity. So let's just address this idea of youth here. Timothy's in his early 30s at this point. Not exactly a youth, but... I mean, we, you know, when I, I think I started ministry in my 24, I think I was, you know, the, the, the amount of flack I received for being a young, inexperienced guy. I didn't even have my degree at the time. And every single thing I did wrong got picked apart for my age oh you're just young oh you're inexperienced oh that's what you get for not having a college degree oh you know stuff like that it's like i every mistake i made what made people despise me and there were people who absolutely despised me for it and they shouldn't have but i was still wrong and i still sinned so i understand why they did but now i i get it i get what paul's getting at with timothy And, you know, that's in our culture, which is far more understanding of young people. I mean, you've got CEOs of companies who are still in their 20s and they're making billions of dollars. We accept that a lot more regularly than the the first century because in the first century, Greek culture ruled the world. The Greek influence was massive. And in the Greek culture, the wisdom of age was most valuable. So older men were the most trusted. Younger men, idiots, stupid, don't listen to them. They're fools, can't trust them. That was the Greek culture at the time. So culturally, Timothy had an uphill battle to gain support for his leadership, and that is why it's mandatory that his behavior be such a Christ-like example so that his age is not thrown in his face for any lack of righteousness, so that he is righteous and obedient and faithful. And in Timothy's authoritative role as pastor, it's mandatory that his life is an example of the person of Christ, not just because of his age, but because of how the nature of Christ is viewed by the church And the world is at stake. His leadership is to be an imitation of the character and quality of Christ's, meaning the pastor must be a spirit-filled man or he will never lead like Christ, at least not for long. And this is vital to the pastor's authority. The authority of the elders to command obedience to God's word does not mean that the people should blindly obey and follow their elders. It, It is necessary that the church communicates well. It is. It is not necessarily a bad thing to ask your leaders why they command certain things, or to discuss disagreements about their commands, or discuss disagreements about their direction of their guidance, or does it, Or to discuss and talk about and communicate disagreements about doctrine. That's not a problem. Agreement is incredibly difficult. We just discuss. I just I was just saying before, right? That. There isn't one person in this world that you 100% agree with. We're going to disagree with one another on things. That's okay. But then we get to 2 Corinthians 13:11 and what does Paul say? Agree with one another. <laughs> it's like, "What? We can't." He's like, "Exactly." So what should we do? Work on it. Agreement isn't automatic. Agreement requires other biblical principles being involved, such as Philippians 2.3, which says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So agreement forms when the church has the mind of Christ. And if anyone has the mind of Christ, they will agree because Christ cannot disagree with himself. So if you have the mind of Christ and I have the mind of Christ and we both have the mind of Christ and we're both filled with the Spirit, we're going to agree. And if we disagree, because we're filled to spirit and humility, we're going to count each other more significant than ourselves. And we're going to work towards agreement instead of fighting and battling each other for who's most right. So disagreement is to be expected, but it takes work. But so also is selfless humility to be expected, which turns disagreement into agreement and therefore into unity in Christ. So it's not, disagreement's not wrong. It's how you disagree that matters. Because I've seen both kinds of disagreements come to me. I've had people come up to me and say, hey, you are talking about this. And I don't like, I want to talk more about that because I, I don't understand it. Or they say, you know, I don't agree with that. And I want to like share with you what I think. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's get in the word together and discover what this really means. And, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe we're both wrong. I don't know. Let's figure it out. Like that, I'm all, I love that. If you have any disagreements with me, let's talk. I love those conversations. And then there's a disagreement that is just defiance, right? Like a disagreement in defiance to, to the church leaders, and that's that's sin. But disagreement that comes from a desire to know Christ and grow in his Christ-likeness leads to healthy conversations and discussions in the word of God. And such an activity produces sanctification both in the parishioners and in the pastors. So, submission and obedience to your pastors is not blind obedience. You don't just do what they say because they say it. It's open eyed obedience that seeks to understand the truth as you submit yourself to their leadership because that's what God commands of you. And you do that submission in the process of of arriving at agreement in doctrine and practice together. And that is why it's so important that the shepherds, verse 12, set the believers an example. And that example is given by Paul in five ways. He tells Timothy in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. The pastor's speech must be an example of Christ, just as believers The believer reveals the condition of their heart in the way that they navigate their disagreements with church leadership. So also the pastor reveals the condition of their heart in the way that they speak. Like the way I talk to you in everyday life should reveal to you my heart. I guarantee you, if I were to really dig in and say, would any of you guys see anything maybe not perfect in the way that I talk or speak, that you would say, might be some sin underneath that. I bet I could find a few of you who could point a few things out. It is my responsibility to grow in the way that I speak so that I give you an example to follow. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34-37, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. Meaning if you have a good heart, good will come out. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. When you hear people spewing out evil things, it's because their heart's evil. And he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Your words don't justify you or condemn you. It's the heart that justifies you or condemns you. And the words reveal the heart. So Jesus is teaching us that the deepest seed in the heart is going to find the light of day in the way we communicate. Therefore, the pastor must have a heart of godliness so that from their good treasure of Christ within, they will pour out godliness in their speech and thus set for the believers an example to follow in the way that you use your tongue. The pastor's conduct must also be an example of Christ. As he is the image of Christ to the church. As a stand-in shepherd for the chief shepherd. First 1 Peter 1.15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Because Christ is holy, and the pastor is a representative of Christ, the pastor must also be holy, and in doing so, set an example for the church to follow. This is also imperative because 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So your honorable and godly conduct is not just for each other's sake, but also for the sake of those whose only witness to the gospel will be your conduct. The pastor's love must also be an example of Christ. And Christ-like love, according to Ephesians 5.25 and John 15:13 is one of self-sacrificial service to others. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 20:28 20, that he came not to be served but to serve, so also the shepherds of the church must understand and act out their leadership in a self-sacrificing service like Christ did, so as to ensure that the body of Christ sees the cost of following Jesus. And then they see the reward in that pastor as he finds joy in his trials and suffering. And he then gives an example to follow in that way too. So that the people see the cost of following Christ is great. And I see an example in my shepherds that as they pay the price of that cost to follow Christ, their result is satisfaction in Jesus pleasure in the Lord, and joy. I want that. And if I have to get, if, if to get that requires I go through what they're going through, meaning I have to follow them, and it's going to be a similar path that has similar pains, then I'll do it. To know the Lord more and to, find, to be more satisfied in Him, it's worth it. And I would give you examples of this from my own life, examples of the cost of following Christ. I'm not going to because I think that if I gave you personal examples, they'd be way too self-exalting and I want to stay away from that. But I'll just say, there's plenty of opportunities for us to follow Christ through, as I read earlier in the communion, the thicket of the Jordan, through the rough stuff. And it's worth it because on the other side is the promised land. The pastor's faith must also be an example of Christ. And this refers not to belief, but the idea of continued faithful commitment to Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And the elders of the church are the stewards of the church. God gave me, Grace Church, and Brian Grace Church, to steward so, I have to be found trustworthy in my stewardship of the church. And that stewardship is meant to sanctify you, so to present you as blameless and spotless before Christ. By washing you in the water of the word by the men, by me and Brian and other teachers who teach and command and set the example. And this is the only faithful way to steward the church. And such stewardship requires that the shepherd also lives according to such standards and remains faithful to Christ and his word. And finally, the pastor's purity must also be an example of Christ. This word purity does not explicitly refer to sexual purity, but it is implied because within the context of this letter in chapter five, verse two, which is coming up soon, Paul will use this word again to say, treat older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. This is the only two times, 4.12 and five two, the only two times in the entire Bible that this word is used. And so we put it in this context of A pastor treating older women like mothers and treating younger women like sisters, what would be the opposite of treating them like that? Well, it would essentially be, because Paul then mentions purity, obviously he's saying don't sexualize your relationships with women. Be pure in the way that you relate. See them as sisters. See the older women as mothers. Treat them like you'd treat your mother. Treat the younger woman like you'd treat your sister. Feel toward them the way you'd feel about your sister. If someone abused my sister, how would I feel about that? Defensive. Protective. If someone was mistreating my mother, how would I feel? Defensive and protective, and I would do something about it. And so, we should treat each other with a similar affection. And what that does is it prevents us from perverting our perception of our relationships this concept of purity as it relates to how the shepherd interacts with the females in the church obviously conveys this idea that men must see their sisters in Christ as Christ. Instead of sexualizing him. And in doing so, the shepherds will set for the body an example to follow for how we relate to one another. And how they view, setting an example for how you view others through the lens of Christ instead of the lens of their own sinful flesh, which will pervert godliness and sexualize relationships that are meant to be platonically Christ-centered in nature. So, what does all this mean to you and who are, who are not shepherds and pastors and elders in the church? One This helps you gauge what kind of men you put yourselves into submission to, and it gives you a biblical lens through which to understand what to expect from your shepherds. And two, the way Paul explains that the pastor is supposed to live his life is proposed as an example, meaning the real aim of this kind of life is that the body of Christ, you follow it. So all of these commands are for you to follow, And yes, I'm held accountable for giving you an example to follow. But even if I don't, you still should. And I'll be held accountable if I don't. And if I don't, and because I don't, you don't, I'm also held accountable for you not doing it. And so this is very important. Man, it's... I'm just going to be honest with you guys. It's so easy to, to preach. It's so easy to preach. I could preach all day. I could preach about anything, anytime, anywhere. I mean, it's just, it's, I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. I love teaching the Bible. And I love preaching way more than I like teaching, teaching in more of a teaching setting. But I love doing both. And then sometimes I just, you know, I'm writing a sermon, thinking about the text. I'm going, I don't live this. And I'm like, ah, oh, why can't I just preach? Why do I have to live it? <laughs> it would be so much. I would preach anything if I didn't have to live it. It's so hard to live. And then I realize, especially in when I get to like, you know, books like 1 Timothy. And it's like, here, Timothy, here's your standards for living. I'm like, oh, that's for the pastors. Whew, okay, this is hard. All right, here's what I do. Before Sunday, I have to be perfect in all these things all week. Or I won't feel good about that sermon. And then what do you think I'm operating in? The power of Mark. You think that's going to work out for me? No. And then I just struggle. And I'm like, ah, now I feel terrible. How am I going to go preach the word? And then I sit in my office on Sunday morning. Well, you guys are all here talking. I'm like, Lord, just... Okay, here's all my sins. Forgive me. Use me. I don't know. Whatever. Figure it out. (laughs) You know? And, And then I it's just, it's just, I'm just being honest with you. It's hard. It's a high standard. And it's not just a high standard. I recognize all the nuances of scripture that talk about the consequences of not doing these things and the rewards for doing them and all the in intricacies that are woven into these things and what that must mean and where does it come from and where is it going? And if I do this, this is what's going to happen. I see all of that and I'm like, dah! it's hard not to look at yourself and go, I'm like a mess. I can't get it together. And every time I realize, I'm like, that's right. That's the point. I can't get it together. And neither can you. So if I'm going to try to get it together so that I can present a really good version of Mark before you when I see you on Sunday morning, is that going to benefit you? No, because you know what's coming out of you, out of me? Mark. No, it's not coming out of me? Christ. And what are you going to see? Mark. And you're going to think you're seeing Christ because you're supposed to. And then I'm deceiving you. Whether I'm aware or not, I'm deceiving you. And your example will be a poor one because I am not a good example to follow. But Christ in me is. So that's a heavy burden. And you feel that burden too, that burden to follow Christ and be like him. It's difficult to navigate. And so the best thing to do, honestly, and this is, like, this is always an answer to any problem, the best thing to do, be humble. Just be humble. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to teach something wrong. Someone's going to correct me. I'm going to sin. You're going to correct me. I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to correct me. You know, someone asked me the other day, I was talking to a, a, a very significant church leader um, about all the events that have kind of taken place in our church over the last 18 months to two years. And they said, did you make any mistakes in that time. And I was like, yeah, a few. (laughs) You know, like, he tried to help me understand that like, you know you're not perfect in all of this, right? So the only thing you can do is just be humble. I mean, that's the ultimate go-to. And from there, God's got a lot of room to work with you. So ultimately, all this faithful Christ-likeness in the church will do what Paul said was the aim back in verse 10, which is to set our hearts and minds on our hope, Jesus Christ. And he is our goal and he is our reward. Meaning your leaders should not be the focus of your holiness. I mean, I don't want you being like, oh, I like the way Mark preaches. Oh, I like the way Christian teaches. I like the way Brian does this. I like the way this person does that. I, I, that's 1 Corinthians where Paul says, stop it. Stop talking about which person you like so much. It's not about them. It's about the gospel. It's about the word of God. It's about Jesus. We follow the word. All the men who are leading. I mean, you should love those men because they're your brothers in Christ. So that's awesome. But it's not them you're following because they should be following Christ. So it's Christ you're following. And if they're doing a good job, They will not be telling you to follow them. They will be telling you to obey God and follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Meaning your leader should not focus, your focus on your leader should not be on the men, but on Christ, on knowing Christ, on loving Christ, on desiring Christ, on pursuing Christ. And that should be the supernatural product of godly leadership because only in him not in men. Will you find true satisfaction, pleasure, and joy with a mindset and the hope of an eternity with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. It's very difficult to live this Christian life. It's very difficult to command others to live this Christian life, knowing full well that I struggle with myself with it, and also knowing that they have, are probably having just as, a, just as much of a hard time with it as I am, if not harder sometimes. And so, um, help us to be gracious and understanding and compassionate towards one another as we struggle through sin, as we try to apply your gospel power to conquer the sins in our lives. Help us to support one another and love each other. Help us to be examples to to each other, not just pastors being examples, but one another being examples to one another. It's hard, God. You know how hard it is. Jesus, you know how hard it is. You had it the hardest. So help us. And your word says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because you've been through all the hard things we've go through. So we can go to you. We can bring our problems to you. We can bring our struggles to you. We can bring our misconceptions to you. And you can change us. And we can do that together, humbly, in your word. We're just so grateful that you love us. It makes all of this worth it. I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.